Well, Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, the verse right before chapter 7 begins, Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, we're right here on the front edge, on the cusp of the story of Noah and the ark. And it's a graphic picture of the type of relationship between man and God that yields salvation. Noah's relationship with God Yield salvation. And it's especially, as we talked about last week, a graphic picture of a relationship between man and God that yields salvation in the end times. In the last days. For Noah was a last days prophet. He lived in the last days of planet Earth before the flood, before it was all completely destroyed. You and I, I very much believe, live in the similar days. In the last days of Earth before it will be destroyed in a different way. But Noah and his life and his relationship with God is so important for us because we can see in his relationship, I believe, the kind of relationship that God wants us to have. Listen to that verse again. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. This relationship between Noah and God is one of dependence that yields obedience that follows atonement. In other words, as Jesus atones for us, as he heals us, as he makes us new, we find ourselves in a dependent relationship with God that yields obedience. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, folks, that is not an ultimatum. Jesus is not looking at his friends and his disciples and saying, Look, if you love me, you're going to do as I say. Now, I say that to my children from time to time. Hey, if you love your dad, you're going to do what I say. But that's not the, the tone that I believe Jesus has here. Jesus isn't making an ultimatum. He's making a statement of truth. Hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not an issue. It's not a problem. If you love someone, you don't have any problem doing what they ask you to do. Being how they ask you to be. And so Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, here's the end result. If you love me, you will obey me. You will keep my commandments. If you're in that dependent love relationship with me, the rest is going to flow naturally. So don't focus on the commandments so much, on the laws and the rules. Focus on the love. Because if you focus on that love relationship, the laws, the rules, the commandments, they flow naturally. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Noah loved God. He loved him. He walked with him. He had that kind of relationship. And therefore, because he loved God, he did all that God commanded him to do. Don't forget, in your love relationship with God, don't forget who loved who first. God made the first step. He made the first move. The dramatic move on the cross. God made the statement, I love you, long before we responded. And it's interesting that in Noah's story, it's the same thing. Who contacted who about the flood? Who let who know about the flood? Back in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 6, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall cover the ark with runes, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And we talked about last week that that word pitch, it's the first mention of that Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and it is literally the word for atonement. It's the word for atonement. Every other use of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament is the word atonement, except in this one place where the word is used to cover the ark. And that's what atonement is. It's a covering. It's God covering us in the same way that Noah covered the ark with pitch. God covers us and protects us from the judgment to come. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, 
Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Now you might want to take a big pen and in your Bibles, if your Bible says enter the ark, scratch out enter and write the word come. Because the word is not entered. And I've, I've looked at several different texts to figure this out. The King James Version is the only one that gets it right. The word, the literal word in the Greek is bo. B-O. And the word bo, or sorry, I said Greek, I meant Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew is bo, and that word means come. Come. Throughout all of the Old Testament, whenever the word bo is used, it is the context of come, not enter. What's the big difference? Well, a couple of things to notice right off the bat in this first verse. And the first one is that God is inviting Noah to come into the ark. He's not saying go. He's not saying enter. He's saying come. What does that tell you about where God is? He's in the ark. Come and be in this safe place. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. God said in Isaiah 1.18, Come now. Come. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be wool. From cover to cover, in the Bible, the Lord speaks this word to people. Come. And he says the same thing to Noah. Not enter, not head in, but come. Come into the ark, Noah. Revelation 22:17. the Bible ends with this same word. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So, chapter 7 begins with an invitation to Noah and his family. Alright, Noah, time is now. Come. But the second thing to notice in the first verse is God's intention. His invitation is come. His intention is to save. Now God's intention is not just saving individuals. It's interesting here to note God is into saving families. He's into saving families. The Bible tells us that, that God says, Come into the ark, you and all your household. Your wife, Noah, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. The eight of you come on in to the ark. I mention that because I think some of us need to be reminded of that tonight. That God is into saving families. That it is God's intention to save families, not just individuals. You may have heard that Darwin, Charles Darwin, the propagator of the theory of evolution, was once an, af an altar boy in the Catholic Church. When he was young, he was an altar boy. But as he grew older and watched his father and his brothers reject Christ, reject religion, reject God outright, Darwin came into a place of conflict in his life. And his conflict was, if I stay with my religion, if I stay where I am right now, I'm condemning my father and my brother because by my very belief, they are going to hell. Darwin struggled with that so much that he himself ultimately left and rejected God. He said, how can a loving God destroy my family? And so Darwin went on, heading into the world of agnosticism, and propagating a theory that has created more havoc and destroyed more faith than any in our present time. Darwin missed the point, as many people do, that God is not just into saving individuals, but is into saving families. And in his choice, Charles Darwin shut the door, so to speak, on his father and his brothers ever finding Christ because he himself rejected Listen to me, God is into saving families. If there are people in your family, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, grandparents, 
aunts, uncles, anybody in your extended family who does not know Jesus right now understand God's intention is to save them. That's what he wants. That's what he's holding out for. And those of you who went through the Revelation study know he's holding out. We're on borrowed time. And God is holding out with mercy and with patience for everyone to be saved. And we forget that sometimes. We look at our families and think, how could God condemn them? He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. Through you, God wants to reach your families. So don't give up on your families by giving up on God. You hold fast to God and let Him do the work through you with your family. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that during the construction of the ark, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Listen, folks, God's intention is to save your family, but there is only one way that I know of, one way that I know of to bring your family to the Lord. And that's to do what Noah did, to lead. To lead. You will not bring your family to the Lord by backpedaling. But you may bring your family to the Lord by leading. Noah didn't have a family meeting to discuss the ark. At least not that we have record of. He didn't sit down with his sons and their wives and his wife and say, Okay, God asked me to build this boat. What do you think? Should we do it? I'm not sure, you know, I mean, because we want to be democratic about this. Let's discuss it and decide. No. Noah talked to God, and then as far as I can tell from Scripture, went back to his family and said, we're building an ark. Okay, we're building an ark. And then when the door was open and God said, come into the ark, Noah looked at his family and said, let's go, guys. And Noah was in, went in to the ark. Acts chapter 10, we see the story of Cornelius. It's interesting to me. Cornelius, a Gentile, who was seeking God in prayer and was given a vision for the Lord, told to go and send for a man named Peter. Well, Peter at the same time was having a vision from the Lord, telling him to go and take the gospel to Gentiles. And so the two connected, and Peter comes, and what happens with Cornelius' family? You can read it in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius and all his household was saved. That's the way of the Lord. God wasn't just concerned with Cornelius, he was concerned with the whole entire household. Same thing in Acts chapter 16, with the Philippian jailer. And Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, they're in prison, and as they are freed by a miracle, the Philippian jailer doesn't know what's going on. He's scared to death. He, he's about to take his own life because he knows that's what Rome's going to do to him anyway. And Paul and Silas stop him. And that very night, he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, and he and all his household, the scripture tells us, were saved. It is the Lord's intention to save you and your house. You and your family. God is into saving families. Now, flip in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we look into this a little more closely. In Luke 9, Jesus is talking about discipleship, about following Him, about how it's hard. It's not an easy road to take. And in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9, and tells us that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, 
Permit me first to go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. But the Lord said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. What does Jesus say? No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Understand Jesus here. Is Jesus saying, listen, blow off your family. Forget your family. Ignore your family. You got a father who died? Let the dead bury their own dead. You want to say goodbye to those at home? Oh, poor little baby, I have to go say goodbye to mommy. I mean, is that his attitude? What Jesus is saying is, you follow me. And if you follow me, guess what? Your family now has opportunity to follow you following me. As Noah's family followed him into the ark, so the way to lead your family to the Lord is you go. You follow him. You go where God calls. You literally lead your family. Folks, you're not going to save them by constantly looking back. If you want to bring your family to the Lord, lead like Noah. You go through the, the door first. And what does the door on the ark represent to us? What does the door on the ark represent to us? The one door. Jesus. Thank you. He's Jesus. He says, I'm the door for the sheep. I think that's awfully interesting. The, the, the time before that that we see in Scripture where animals went into a door, it was on the ark. Sheep did go through the door on the ark, along with two of every kind of animal. And we talked last week how that was possible, how there's 40% of the ark left over. Jesus is the door. Go through the door, and your family will follow. I've got to tell you guys that I came to a, a really difficult place about eight weeks ago now. And this whole decision to start the church that, that I'm starting over on with the island. And I want you to hear my heart on this. That it became very clear to me that if I was to do this, that I had to make a decision to do it, whether or not anyone else said they would. That I came to a place where God said to my heart, specifically, Rick, you got to do this. Because when I first started thinking about it, I started looking around and going, well, I don't, I don't want to pull people away from FCC. I don't want to cause a problem. And I don't want to be out there on Whitby Island all by myself. <laughs> you know, I can see Cheryl and I and the kids out in the barn somewhere. You know, praising the Lord. And so I, I began just thinking about this and praying about it. Lord, what am I supposed to do here? And God's answer was very clearly, follow me. Go. I had to make the decision before my wife made the decision. Before my children made the decision. And before anybody else who's helping start that church made that decision. And I'm telling you, it was not an easy decision to make. Because I knew, I knew that was a pretty big thing hanging out there. You know? Just, just me out going, okay, I'm going to go. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to elevate that decision by any means. I'm just telling you what happened was I had to make a decision to do it. And it wasn't until I made that decision that then some other people could make a similar decision to go and make this happen. It's the same in our families. God says, lead. And I'll tell you what, husbands and fathers in the room, man, if I can say this gently and with love, get off your couches and lead. Be the spiritual leaders of your homes. That's our responsibility. It's a biblical responsibility. And if there's not a husband or a father in the home, somebody take the reins. Somebody lead. Wives, if you have a husband who is living at home and not taking that responsibility and not leading, the man you lead. 
But don't sit around and wait for your family to make a corporate decision about Jesus. If you want your family saved, step out. Lead. Just like Noah. Verse 22 of chapter 6. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Noah led, his family followed. Verse 2 of chapter 7. God speaking to Noah said, You shall take with you of every clean animal, and we'll talk about clean animals next week, you shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Verse 4. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah again did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. See the relationship of dependence and obedience there? Verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood water came upon the earth. And then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Verse 8. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. We're going to understand this more clearly when we get to chapter 8 tonight. But I'll tell you something real quickly about the clean animals. Why seven clean animals and what's going on with all that. Just as we saw with Cain and Abel, we will see with Noah that God had made something crystal clear to man. Something very important that man understood at this point in history, understood all the way back to Cain and Abel, that there was a serious penalty for sin, but a blood sacrifice offered up could atone for that sin. Now, see, we don't see this until the law of Moses as a law to the people of Israel. But sacrifice to God existed before the law of Moses. Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to God. And Noah here is told, I want you to bring seven, seven clean animals. Why seven? Why not just two? As you'll see, after the ark lands, Noah offers sacrifice. He offers animal sacrifice. He knows, he understands what that's about. And so, that's what Noah does. Now I want you to notice something else interesting here. Last week we saw that the ark was perfectly suited to hold the animals with room to spare. That literally the ark had about a 60% capacity. It was filled up about 60% and there was like 40% space left in the ark after all the animals came in. Question. How did the animals get there? Did they come in with little balloons attached to them? Is that how it worked? <laughs> how did the animals get there? Now, if you've ever heard Bill Cosby do his version of Noah and the Ark, that's very funny. And Noah, he, or Bill Cosby talks about Noah, and, and he talks about Noah going out in all the world and trying to get all the animals and bring them to the Ark. This is the misconception that we have about the animals in the Ark. That, okay, Noah only had a certain amount of time to build the ark, but once it was done building, what did he become, like a, a prospector? Or did he go out into all the world? Not a prospector, but like a, a rancher? And was he traveling all the time to all the weird places? Think about the weird animals. Think about all the different species of animals on planet Earth. I mean, did he go to Antarctica and get the penguins? Was that part of Noah's job? What did Noah do? How did he get all the animals into the ark? Let me try and explain something here. 
Noah didn't collect the animals, they just miraculously knew to come. What does it tell us? Verse 9, there went into the ark and to Noah by twos. They came to Noah. They went to Noah. The animals on their own came to Noah. <laughs> Rick, come on. I mean, you cannot possibly believe that. That the animals just suddenly, oh, time to go. You know, so there was this mass migration to the ark. That is exactly what I believe, and I'll tell you why. First of all, these animals do represent the first migration in history. Scientists today still have no idea, no naturalistic explanation for the remarkable instincts that certain animals have to survive. That certain animals have to migrate depending on the seasons. They don't know why animals do it. They don't know how animals just understand when it begins to get cold where they're supposed to go. And how they know how to come back to the exact same place. Scientists with all of our vast scientific knowledge cannot figure out something as simple as migration. Folks, I believe animals were hardwired with migratory instincts. It makes sense that animals are given certain instincts to survive in the wild, and migration is one of those. And I believe that these animals, these first animals who migrated before the flood, had an instinct that God put in them. That at a certain point in time, a certain place in history, they would mass migrate to the ark. And folks, I believe it's the descendants of those very animals that, that continued on with migratory instinct. There was no reason for any animal to migrate prior to the ark. Go back thinking to our study in Genesis chapter 1, the water canopy, the state of things on planet earth, that everything was pretty much the same on all corners of the planet, that you had this nice, warm, balmy, tropical, nice place to live, that animals wouldn't have been all spread out as they are today based on different you know, levels of heat and cold and, and just different areas but that they would have been spread uniformly around the world because it wouldn't have mattered. The penguins didn't have to be in the South Pole. They wouldn't have to be down there. They could be anywhere. And animals could be anywhere. Morris in the Genesis record said, when the time came, these animals, instinctively sensing the approaching storm, began to move, urged, I believe, by God to go to the waiting ark. Noah did not go get the animals, they came to him. Now, the other thing about these animals that's interesting is that they were most likely, at least the ark animals, were most likely locals. That they lived around that area. What, two of every kind of animal? Yeah, two of every kind. In other words, they didn't have to travel far. Again, Morris in the Genesis record said, remember that the climate before the flood was probably uniformly warm over all the earth due to the water canopy, which I just expressed, which would have helped regulate a temperature or a temperate environment. Consequently, he writes, animals were not ecologically isolated in different latitudes and longitudes as at present, but were more or less uniformly distributed around the world. So the point is, the animals came to Noah. Noah didn't go get the animals. They migrated because it was time for them to do that, and God had planted within them that in instinct to do so. Verse 10, it came about that after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Listen, folks. At FCC we just finished 40 days of community. 
but I want you to hear me on this and understand something here. Forty days holds a great significance in the Bible, but that significance relates to three things that I see from reading Scripture. It relates to judgment, 40 days relates to trials, and 40 days relates to difficulty. Judgment, trials, difficulties. Well, we just did 40 days of community. Was that, was that all about judgment and trials and difficulty? For some it was. Some of you have had a harder time in the last 40 days than you've had in a long time. Trials, struggle. Well, why would God do that? Why would God, in the middle of 40 days of community, Phenomenal Community Church, and all the good stuff that was supposed to happen, that that was supposed to be about, why would God have Pastor Rick leave? Why would he hang that shadow over this time that was supposed to be a celebration of community? Why would God allow things to happen? Now, you need to understand, the 40 days of community, in case you were wondering, that was planned by Ron and Doug and I early in the summer. That did not come about as a result of one pastor deciding to go start another church. That was planned before. So the only person who knew, the only one who knew that Rick was leaving at the same time that 40 days of community was supposed to begin was the Lord. Why would he do that to us? I wonder if Ron and Doug have asked themselves that question from time to time in the last few weeks. Why now? Why couldn't they have just been after 40 days of community? Why is it when life seems to be going well and we seem to be getting ourselves into to situations that are good and healthy and happy, do we get hit with 40 days of judgment, of trial, of struggle, of hardship? Moses wandered for 40 years in Midian, in the deserts, until he emerged as possibly the greatest prophet that Israel ever knew. Israel wandered themselves for 40 years in that desert until Joshua was raised up as a leader. Goliath threatened and taunted Israel for 40 days until David came and led Israel. Elijah, after defeating the 400 prophets of Baal, ran and hid from Jezebel's wrath until, nourished by God, he finally heard the Father speak to him in a still, small voice and found comfort. After 40 days. And Jesus himself was tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days. Here's the thing not to miss. Through times of hardship, trial, difficulty, even in times where judgment seems to be the case, great things happen for people of God. Now, we don't like those times. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be stretched. We don't like to feel sometimes the emotions and the strain and stress that we have to feel in going through certain periods of our life. But don't miss that these are times that God is working out miracles. That he is about to take us to something greater and better than we have ever known. It's what happened for Noah as the floodwaters poured for 40 days. Well, now we come to this horrifying, great, and terrible retelling of the flood itself. And it is. This is unbelievable. If you've heard stories of the flood, look closely as the Bible explains exactly what happened. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, they and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. And so they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. 
So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. God closes the door. Folks, again, the door is a picture of Jesus in Scripture. That Jesus is the one door, the one way to the Father. There is salvation found in no other name but in the name of Jesus. Listen to this. God is the one who seals tight our salvation. In the same way that Noah was sent into the ark, called, invited into the ark, and he and his family went in, God closed the door and sealed it up. Was there any leakage during the flood? I doubt it. Well, we know there wasn't. Were there any problems? Did Noah fear for his life watching the door? No, because the Father sealed it shut. The Father sealed him in. 2 Corinthians 1.18 tells us the following about our salvation like Noah's. Paul says, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Yes, in the Lord. Verse 20 says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now listen, He who establishes us with you in Christ Jesus and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirits in our hearts as a pledge. When you walk through the door of faith, when you walk through the door who is Jesus by faith, God seals us tight with his Holy Spirit. He gives us a special pledge, a credit, a guarantee, and that pledge is his Holy Spirit living in us. It is the gift of God to everyone who believes. And one of the unique things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is guarantee for us salvation. Remember we talked before about Abraham, that he was credited with righteousness. He was given a credit a promise that he would ultimately be made righteous when Jesus died and that death could serve as the sacrifice that even Abraham needed way back before. In the same way that Abraham was credited with righteousness, you and I are credited with salvation. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. We can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we're saved. Well, let's go on a little further here. Verse 17, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark. So that it rose above the earth, and the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And the water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living creature that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Yeah, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but the water prevailed on the earth. That is, it continued to expand and flood and grow 150 days. That's terrifying. 
That's horrible. Horrible. It's horrific. According to the Bible, actually according to simple chronological data from the Bible, it had only been some 1,655 years after creation that God had to wash the earth clean of enormous evil. The evil that had spread out there. When I was a kid, we had a, a family Bible. A lot of families used to have them. This big white Bible, lots of nice pictures and paintings and stuff in it. And, and as a little kid, I remember sitting in our living room, and on days where I was just really bored, and we didn't have video games and Nintendo and stuff back in those days, so I just, in bored times, would go and open up that Bible and look at the pictures. There was a particular painting of the flood that scared me to death. I mean, it literally gave me nightmares. The picture was of the ark, this big, and, and they actually drew it right, this big barge out in the water. The water's coming down. It was gray and dark and, and, and just nasty looking. The, the waves were all over, and there was a certain peak, mountaintop, that was just about to be covered, and there were people all over the top of the mountain clinging to it for dear life. And as a child, I looked at that picture and went, I wouldn't have wanted to be one of those people. I understood, even as a kid, those people didn't have a prayer because that mountaintop was, gonna, was not going to remain uncovered. These people were going to drown. And that was the first time, I think, in my life where I realized the severity of the flood. Now, we all have heard flood stories so much. We've seen, again, the cute little Noah's Ark toys. We've seen little cartoons that, that play about the whole Noah and the Ark story. But, folks, it was a tragedy. It was horrifying. How did the flood happen? Bill Cosby's version of it, Noah says to God, why don't you just wait, you know, let it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and wait for the sewers to back up. Now, and that'll bring about the flood. Folks, God's way of, of the flood was one of dramatic, dramatic power. Now, I want you to go back to verse 11. And let's look closely at how the flood actually happened. Verse 11 tells us that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. That's the first thing you might want to take note of. The fountains or springs of the deep were literally, the word there, were ripped open. Job chapter 38, verse 16. God is questioning Job, and he's trying to give Job a new world view. Help Job understand who God really was. That there's one God and Job, you're not him. And God says to Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The word of God, folks, indicates that not only was there a water canopy around the world, but there were also subterranean waterways under the earth, in the world. Subterranean waterways springs, fountains of the deep that were beneath the surface of the earth. Now, some creation scientists believe that these waterways could have been per a perfectly balanced subterranean heating system that would have repressurized and recycled the waters of the seas, lakes, oceans, and rivers prior to rain on the planet. Now, think about it. For us, when the Skagit River gets low, it's because of one thing. We haven't had rain. Well, there was no rain until the flood. Planet Earth didn't experience rain. So where did the water come from to feed the rivers, to keep the lakes processed. It came from the subterranean waterways, waterways that were already rushing and, and flowing through in the planets, uh, underneath the planet. Now, God clearly provided for the longevity and preservation of the world he created, and he continues to do so today. He continues to provide. 
In fact, I love this phrase from Chuck Smith. He always says, where God guides, God provides. And we need to trust that. Where God guides, God provides. God provided for a way. Had there been no flood, God provided a way the planet Earth could have continued, could have gone on. The rivers would have flowed, not with rain, but with water that came from the Earth itself. Now, what happens with these springs of the deep, with these fountains of the great deep, the Bible says, my, my version says, it burst open. The word there is baka. Baka in the Hebrew that literally means to rend, to rip open, or to cleave. That this is an action of a hand tearing through, opening up, tearing apart the fountains of the great deep. And they began, listen to this, to shoot upward. All right. Now that we're trying to take a scientific somewhat view of, of what's talked about here. That the very first thing that happened, that the Bible tells us, that all the fountains of the great deep burst open. So if you can imagine huge, vast funnels of water shooting up out of the earth, that was the first thing that happened. Even prior to the rain coming down, the water shot up. Have you ever had a, a, a what were they called, pressure washer? Ever used a pressure washer? Those things are a little dangerous. You can take out entire sections of fence. I won't tell you how I know that. But those pressure washers, think about a pressure washer and how powerful water truly is. You get the right amount of pressure shooting in water. And you can blow right through the side of a house. You can knock over cars. If you've seen floods happen, you know the damage and the devastation that comes from a flood. Just imagine the kind of devastation that would have happened if water from the great deep began to just explode upward. Well, taking this a little bit further, it gets ripped open. And here, here's, let me give you a description. I have this written down so I get it right. Creation scientists describe it something like this. God cleaves or rips open the fountains of the deep. This, in turn, begins a chain reaction leading to volcanic explosions and eruptions all over the earth, blowing great columns of magma, water, and volcanic debris from the earth's core straight up now into the atmosphere. The atmospheric turbulence suddenly is now expanding and cooling. It has expanding and cooling gases, debris, and then literally these things surge up and penetrate the water canopy around the earth, allowing an immediate torrent of water above the heavens to now dash down. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly how it happened, but if you want to look at a naturalistic perspective on it, that if God ripped open these fountains of the great deep and they began to shoot upward into the atmosphere blowing holes in the water canopy that now surrounded planet earth and through those holes the torrents of rain began coming down so it wasn't just rain coming from the heavens people going wow what's going on here it was water coming up and coming down and for the first time since creation the waters that God divided with the expanse came back together this was a deluge Frightening. Water coming up, water coming down. It came both directions, and people must have been horrified. So the floodgates of the deep were open. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the floodgates of the sky were plowed into. The word there that's used, the floodgates of the sky were opened. The word is not open, like you would open a window. The word here is pafak. And pafak means to plow or to carve. So again, that makes sense. If the water is shooting up out of, the, out of the deep, it is now plowing into, rushing headlong into the water canopy, carving open holes all over the place, and the water comes rushing down as well. Folks, this was the perfect storm. In Hebrew, the word mavul is only used in one place in Scripture. Thank you. 
It's only used in one place in scripture. Mavul. Literally meaning deluge. And it's the only time in the Old Testament where this word is used for flood. There are other places in the Bible where the word flood, there's a different word for flood used. Only in Genesis 6, 7, 8, where the word flood is talked about, is it this word mabul, deluge. Interestingly, also in the Greek and the New Testament, whenever the flood is talked about, it's the word cataclysmos, which is cataclysm. And it's only used in the New Testament to talk about the flood, cataclysmos. Anytime you see that word, it specifically is talking about the flood, and it's not used any other time. What the Bible tells us, and the reason I mention that, is that this flood was unique. A one-time-only event in the history of the world. There was no other event, has been no other event, anything like it, anywhere clear to it. Notice, by the way, as we skip over looking back at about verse 18, that you now see from verses 18 through 24 the same phrase used over and over and over four times, and the phrase is, the water prevailed. The water prevailed. Verse 18 tells us that the water prevailed over the whole earth, and the ark then began to float up. Verse 19 says that the water prevailed over the highest mountains. The highest mountains? Yeah. The highest mountains. Verse 20 says the water prevailed literally 15 cubits over the highest mountains. Now listen to this. Mount Ararat stands 17,000 feet above sea level at its highest point. Which means that the floodwaters would have risen at least 23 to 24 feet above the peak of Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet. That the floodwaters would have risen 23 to 24 feet above the highest mountain peak on planet Earth at the time. And verse 24 tells us that the water prevailed for 150 days on the earth. As I said before, the rain came down for 40 days and 40 nights, but once the rain stopped, the water was still prevailing. It was still swelling. It was still growing for 150 days. Some Christians themselves have tried to argue that this might have just been a localized flood. A localized flood? Well, maybe it was just for that part of the world. Maybe it wasn't a flood that went across all of planet Earth. Why would someone argue that? Why does a Christian person especially say, well, maybe there wasn't a worldwide flood. I'll tell you why. They're backpedaling. Now, I talked about this before. As we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and the, and the, and the story of creation in, 17, in seven days, and people saying, well, I don't know. Maybe seven days isn't exactly seven literal days. Maybe it's a lot of time. Maybe we can kind of partner with our evolutionary brothers and we can figure out a way to make everyone happy. Folks, that's not the way it is. And, and it just I bring this up again because it makes me sick. The way Christians backpedal and how easily we do it and how afraid we are to go find the information and share it with people. This last week, I was in Florida. And while we were there, we met a guy, a guy named Barry. Barry is a pilot. He uh, had served three tours in Vietnam. He is one of the few guys who is, is now uh, licensed as a federal flight deck officer. In other words, he can carry a gun into the, into the cockpit. He can function there. This guy is a killing machine. Now, <laughs> I knew he was meeting us for breakfast. This was Thursday morning. And so I, I already had preconceived notions of what Barry must have been like. Because the night before, he was talking to Mike. Freeman about how, how quickly you can render a person unconscious and if you had to kill him like that. Someone attacks you from behind, he showed Mike how you do it. This guy's a killing machine, scary man. And Mike said, prepare yourself because even though he knows you're a pastor, that's not going to make any difference in his language. It's not going to make any difference in his demeanor. But Mike said, I just, I, but I keep praying for him because I still think there's a possibility we can get it. 
said, all right, we'll have breakfast with Barry, and I look forward to it all night long. And we got there and sat down, and Barry comes in, and he's huge. And he's clean shaven, and he sits down, and he goes, what are we having for breakfast? And he just starts talking and going off. And Mike says, well, this is Pastor Rick. And he goes, oh, you're a pastor. Well, i got some questions for you. And off he went. And I'm sitting there in my mind, and I'm going, oh, Lord, give me words to say. Give me words to say, and please don't let him kill me. You know, I'm thinking, what am I going to say to this guy? What do I have to share with Barry, this guy who's served three tours in Vietnam? Three tours. I mean, my, my worst battles have been with bugs in the backyard. I haven't ever been to Vietnam. This guy was tough. And I listened to him for a few minutes, and suddenly I started to get bold. Because he made some statements about things about seven days of creation, by the way. I just studied that, Barry. <laughs> About Noah and the ark. That's Sunday night. <laughs> and, and I started to question him. Now, you know what happened? And I'm telling you this because I don't... I, you, you need to know this. He immediately backed down. Immediately. He became like a little pussycat. Oh, oh, really? Well, that, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, let me tell you something else, Barry. You know the animals in the ark? Do you realize the ark was only filled with 40% capacity? Well, how do you know that? Well, if you do the math, and I'll show you right here. And, I, and he's just going. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. After, and we had a great breakfast. And, and I really enjoyed spending the time with him. But I'll tell you, after he left, I looked at Mike and I said, You know what? When you've got the word of God behind you, you don't have anyone to fear. Folks, if you study this stuff and know it, you become bold. We don't have to be people who backpedal in our faith. I believe in Jesus. Oh, come soon, Jesus. But I can't really tell anybody why. <laughs> tell them. Learn this stuff. Know this stuff. And then when someone starts to question you, don't back down. Well, as a matter of fact, I do have an answer for you on that. Also, I'm, com I'm completely convinced that the Holy Spirit gives us words when we need it. And he did. He did. I was thinking of stuff that I didn't, I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't have my notes out here. And it's real easy for me to sound real knowledgeable up here when I'm studying stuff. <laughs> All these, right in front of me. A little safety net. I had no safety net with Barry, but I did have the Holy Spirit. Powerful stuff. Well, people who say the flood was local, I think were loco. <laughs> the water prevailed, and that word prevailed literally means to overcome violently, and the water did violently overcome the world. Job chapter 12, verse 15 tells us, Behold, he withholds the water, and they dry up. He also sends them out, and check this out, and they overturn the earth. Now, just a thought, a theory. I can't prove this. But it's entirely possible <laughs> that as the flood overturned the earth, that God at that time caused the earth to tilt on its axis. That maybe the earth was not tilted on its axis before. Well, why not? Wouldn't have needed it to be tilted before. The water canopy would have kept everything temperate. But now that it's tilted on the axis, we have four seasons and sometimes very dramatic seasons. People freezing in the winter, people dying of heat in the summer. Four very definite seasons that we know are related to that tilt of the earth. So is this another scientific point that, that Job brings out to us, that he sends them out and they overturn the earth? It's very possible. Bottom line, in the flood, the two deeps of Genesis chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 came back together again in a catastrophic deluge that literally destroyed all life on the planet save the ark it was horrific 
Okay, Rick, we got it. It was horrific. Why do you keep pressing this so heavily on us? Because I want you to know something. And this is about as harsh as I'll get tonight. But judgment is fierce. Judgment is decisive. And judgment is coming. It's coming. Jesus said it will be in the last days just as it was in the days of Noah and the ark. The people are going to be getting married and getting in marriage. They're going to be eating and drinking and hanging out. And they're going to think everything is just fine. In the days right before the flood came, that's the way it was. And then the deluge happened, the most heinous judgment the world had ever seen. The world has ever seen, at least yet. Folks, judgment is coming, but it's not coming by water. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 tells us the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. God promised he would never flood the world again. We'll see that in Genesis chapter 9. What he did not promise is that he would never destroy the world again. He will destroy the world again. It's coming. Bank on it. 2 Peter 3.11 Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In re and regard the patience of our Lord, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard God's patience as salvation. As I said a few minutes ago, for your family members, for your friends. Regard the fact that this decisive judgment has not yet come. Regard God's patience as salvation, not for you. We have it. We have that seal of the Holy Spirit. Man, if you're a believer in Christ, you have your salvation. What does God have to be... What's the patience have to do with? You're already saved. God's patience for those who are not saved. Does God really love my friends? Those who don't believe in Him? You bet He does. How do you know? He hasn't come yet. Does God really love my dad, who's not a believer? My sister, my brothers who don't believe? My aunt or uncle who rejected him outright? Yes, he does. He died on the cross. And right now, he is holding off judgment. But folks, judgment will come. And it will come decisively. And we need to know that. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, you are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. The judgment is coming, but not for those who, like Noah, have gone through the one door, who have gone in through Jesus and who right now are safely tucked away by the Father's hand. By the way, did the floodwaters save Noah? The answer is no. But Noah and his family were saved through them. That the very thing that God used as judgment for the world was used 
to save Noah and his family. Think about it. Had God, the first time around, with the judgment of the flood, had he decided instead of a flood to blow up the earth, where would Noah have gone? But because God told him to build a boat, the very waters that destroyed earth bore him up, he and his family and the animals on board, and protected them, saved them. The waters that judged and killed everybody else saved them. I tell you that because Peter makes a connection here that's very important. 1 Peter 3.18 He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who were formerly disobedient. We talked about them. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which... A few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now this is interesting. The divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Even in Noah's day, 120 years, God waited. Prior to that, as a matter of fact, there's some very good evidence scripturally that even in the days of Enoch, that people understood a flood was coming. Generations before Noah, Enoch was a prophet. And Enoch, as a prophet, had a son. Do you remember his son's name? Look back to Genesis chapter 5. The prophet Enoch. How do we know Enoch was a prophet? Jude tells us he was, very clearly. That he prophesied, Enoch prophesied all the way to the future about the second coming of Christ. You can read that in the book of Jude. But Enoch, this prophet, tells us in, in Genesis chapter 5 verse 21... Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Listen very closely to this. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God. Took him. Enoch had a firstborn son. This was at the point that Enoch was 65 years old and then he began to walk with God. And he had this firstborn son. And Enoch prophetically named Methuselah. He prophetically named him. What do you mean? Methuselah's name means in his death it shall be sent. Or in his death it will come. Or when he dies judgment will come. That's what Methuselah's name means. And we know historically that it was in the year that Methuselah died that God sent the flood. Enoch prophesied that. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like every time little Methuselah got a cold? <laughs> In the year that he dies, the flood is coming. So even as early as Enoch, it is entirely likely that Enoch was prophesying about the coming flood. That in the years of Methuselah and Lamech, all the way up to Noah, and then finally, even at this point, Noah is speaking with God, finds out about the flood coming, and is given another 120 years to build the ark. All the while, as we talked about last week, the ark itself being a sign of coming judgment. That for all these years going back to Enoch, planet Earth, word was out, a flood is supposed to come from God. Now, you have to believe that. Believe that. I've got some beachfront property to sell you in Arizona. Well, ultimately they did. All the way back to Enoch and then through Noah. You see, God is not a vengeful, unjust God who surprised the world with the flood. Everybody knew it was coming. 
It was whether or not they chose to believe it was coming that made the difference. But Peter goes on in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He, he says that this also is an antitype which now saves us. Let me go back a verse and explain this. The divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. What do you mean antitype? The word antitype is literally antitupo, which means counterpart. There is a counterpart to the flood, Peter said, which now saves us. Baptism. Now think back to the question I asked a few minutes ago. Was Noah saved by the water? The answer is no, he was not. But the water was used to save him. In the same way, Peter says, baptism functions. Baptism in and of itself does not save you. If it did, and there was anybody who we knew that was not baptized, it'd be real easy as Christians. We can become gun-toting evangelists. And we just go door to door, put a gun to people's heads, drag them down to the beach, toss them in, and say, congratulations, you're saved. But baptism, the waters don't save you. Peter goes on and he says, baptism is not a removal of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the answer. That when you have accepted God, when you've received Him, when salvation is given to you as that free gift of God's grace, you respond, you answer by going, yes, Lord, and you get baptized. In the same way that the water bore up the ark and saved Noah and his family, the waters of baptism, though they don't in and of themselves save us, are like that. God uses those as a way that we respond to Him. Does water baptism save me? No. But like the flood waters, I can become assured of my salvation by grace, as I respond in faithful obedience to God in baptism. So don't miss the importance of that. And, and I'll, I'll just say it, if you haven't ever been baptized, you haven't ever gone into the water as Noah, then I encourage you just to do it as a response to God for a clean conscience that He gives you. Let's go back to chapter 7 real quickly here. The water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Now, I want to go as far as verse 5 in chapter 8. I really wanted to get through all of chapter 8, but the last couple of things here are so big that I'd rather go out with you just thinking about this. There's something interesting to notice between chapter 7 and 8. As you read, chapter 7 ends with the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And then before you even get into chapter 8, start to realize something. And that is silence. That for 150 days, once God closed the door of the ark, once Noah and his family were shut up with the animals, protected in that safe place, once the floodwaters began, from that point till all the way until after the flood, God did not speak with Noah. At least not that we're aware of. There was silence. What is human nature in hard times? When we're going through struggles, what do we tend to say to God? What's going on here? Give me a little hand here. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Answer me, Lord. I need your help. Lord, that was a big wave. What's going on? Lord, are we there yet? <laughs> Father, 
are you still with me? Now, think about Noah as a human being. Which I want to always encourage you to think about biblical characters, not as biblical flannel graph characters, but as human beings. Not as caricatures that you see on video. Real people. And real Mr. Noah was really in the ark. Really with all the species of animals. And yeah, he had his wife and his sons and their wives, but as they were rocking back and forth and, and knowing that earth was being destroyed all around them, they heard nothing from God. How would you react? I could last maybe a week. Get me into two weeks and I'm starting to freak out. Three and I don't know what's going on and by the end of a month I'm done. That's human nature. And here's Noah. And I know I'm questioning him to a degree. But if he was a human being, he had to have times, nights, where the ark was rocking and creaking and groaning and the waters were splashing against the walls and the animals were, you know, mooing and making the noises that they make. And Noah in the darkness trying to sleep, sleeplessly going, what's going on? Are we really going to survive? Are we going to make it through this time? What happens when it's all over? What if the ark lands on a peak and just topples down the side of a mountain? I mean, what, what happens? God, are you there? It's me. Noah. I'm still here. Where are you, Lord? Flip in your Bibles real fast to Romans chapter 5. Because I think Paul answers for us the question. And it goes right back to the thing I brought up about 40 days and struggle and, and hard times and how we deal with that. And it's important that we see this tonight. Romans chapter 5. We've got an hour if you'll bear with me just like five, ten more minutes. Which I know I've said before, but truly, I think this will be important for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. These five verses are something to memorize. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Noah was justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Why is it an introduction, Paul? Because we, we don't know the depths of grace yet. We haven't even begun to plumb its depths. Reading on. And we exalt. Love the word exalt. It just means to jump up. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. We jump up. Yeah. We get excited. We rejoice. Yeah. In our tribulations. Knowing the following, that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And listen to this. Hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Why do we exult, rejoice, glory, if you will, in tribulations? Why would someone get excited when life is getting hard, when the world is being turned upside down, when you're being tilted on your axis? Why would you get excited about that? Because Paul tells us that tribulation works patience in our lives. And patience proven character. And proven character hope. Hope, by the way, in the Bible is always this. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Hope is literally the confident expectation of coming good. That's what hope means. The confident expectation 
of coming good, all found in that one little word, hope. It's not just, boy, I hope we'll get through this alive. Boy, I hope we win tonight. It's not that kind of hope. It is confident expectation. I know good is coming. I know Jesus is returning to this earth to take me home. I know it. That's hope. Not, boy, I hope I make it. <laughs> Trying to be real good here. Hope I get out okay. It's confident expectation of coming good. Now, the Bible goes on to say, Paul writes, and hope does not disappoint. This is another word that just isn't translated to its depth. Because the word disappoint there is literally never shames me. What do you mean? Hope never shames me. I sit down at breakfast with Barry, and I don't know how to answer what he's about to ask. And my hope is in God, and his hope is in the things of man. Understand, folks, hope never shames me. God will not leave you ashamed, embarrassed, left without words, uncomfortable. Hope never shames me. Why? Because hope is always realized in the Father's plan. It always brings about truth. It always happens. The things hoped for throughout Scripture always come to pass. That's the power of prophecy, folks. Why the Bible is so littered with prophecy, because prophecy proves us, gives us hope. We see one thing prophesied here, later we see it fulfilled, and we go, wow, I can hope in a God who shows me that. Why did Jesus come the first time, and now he's going to come a second time? Well, the first time provides the entire world with something to hope for. Think about this. The Jews had the prophecies of Messiah, but not the realization of Messiah until he came. We live in a time where we have both the realization of the Messiah coming the first time and the prophecy of Messiah coming the second time, and therefore I can stand here and know that my hope will not disappoint me. My hope will not shame me, because the same God who responded to prophecy and came the first time will do so again. Hope does not disappoint. Here's my point. It's when we fall on these hard times, it's when we go through the 40 days of trial and struggle and, and despair, that we deeply discover God's love, which Paul says at the end of this verse, was poured out all over me. That word poured out literally meaning gush out, run greedily, and spill. Paul is using a graphic word to say, man, God's love, you hope in God and his love will just flood you. It will deluge your life. It will overcome you. But now, as we finish up, watch what happens as we move into chapter 8. Verse 1. There was silence in the ark, but God remembered Noah. Time out. Yeah. Does that mean he forgot me? Great question. I, you know, I'm glad you asked that, Frank. <laughs> Had God forgotten Noah? Now God remembered Noah. It's as if the flood went on and things are rocking and rolling and all of a sudden God goes, Oh wait, where's that boat? <laughs> Where'd I put them? Oh, they're on the far side of the earth now. Okay, I'll go. That's not what happened at all. As a matter of fact, just to answer Frank's question quickly here, the phrase there, remembered, is literally kept in remembrance. God kept Noah in remembrance. Along with the cattle that were in the ark and the beasts, everything, God remembered them. He hadn't forgotten them and then went, oh yeah. He kept them in remembrance the whole time. You know, 1990, Seattle. You may, have, you may remember this happening. It actually hit the news. A father was getting into his car 
with his newborn baby in a car seat. Little car carrier. First time father, never had a child before. And those of you who had children for the first time, you know how it's just every day is like, oh yeah, we have a baby, you know, every time they cry. But it's, it's easy to forget when you're not used to it. He put the baby in the car seat on top of the car. He got into the car, messed around with some stuff, and forgot. Closed the door and started driving. Folks, he got onto the freeway and began heading down the freeway at 55, 60 miles an hour when the car seat came off the top of the car and slid off the hood and down to the ground and began sliding along. He pulls the car over, following the car seat, you know, gets off on the side of the road. The baby was fine. It's a miracle. That child was meant to live. Didn't flip over or anything else. But this father, I mean, I remember watching this in the news and I was just going, because we had just had Corey. And I had forgotten him one or two times. There were times where I would take him with me and Cheryl was doing something else and I had him with me and I'd go to the store and I'd close the door and get about half of the store and go, oh, I've got a baby! You know, I'd go run it back and get him out. God says the following, folks. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Did God forget Noah in the ark? No. Any more than he forgets you and I. God keeps us in remembrance. Man, that's good news. Because if you ever feel forgotten by God, he remembers you. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Even though these may forget. I remember my mother. She's so funny. She has a phrase she loves to say, especially when it's been a couple months since I've called. <laughs> She'll answer the phone and go, Hi, Mom. She'll go, When all the world forgets, there is a mother waiting still. <laughs> and so I read to her Isaiah 49:15. Mom, even these may forget, but I, the Lord says, will not forget you. God kept Noah in remembrance. Take a lesson from Noah. God's children are never forgotten on the roof of the car, in the middle of a boat in the seas, or in your everyday life. God does not forget. But he keeps you in remembrance. Now, two last things I want you to know. A state and a date. Okay? The state is this. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it tells us that God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. And I just think this is fascinating. The water is now covering all of the earth. The earth is nothing but a huge sea of water. And the Bible tells us that God caused a wind to pass over it. Wind is ruach, spirit. It is an interesting, I would say a poignant reminder of something else. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And I would put to you my belief is that this is the second time now that God had to destroy what he created and was now moving over the surface of the deep. Now to understand that more, you'll have to go back and talk about Genesis chapter 1, which I will get out sometime on tapes if you want that. So the state of the world covered by water, creation, destruction, and then the spirit moves across the face of the waters. Creation, destruction, and then the spirit moving across the face of the waters. And the other thing I want you to see is just incredible. 
The state of the world was destroyed as God moved, brooded across it. But look at the date of the landing. And for those of you who love to just can't handle it and just want to blurt out something when you realize what I'm about to talk about here, hold it to yourself. Okay? This is one of those little surprise things that someone will go, oh, cool! You know, so let them. Verse 4. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So, I appreciate that, Moses, if you wrote Genesis for letting us know what the day and the date were. Why is that significant for me? Well, same reason that the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 from Seth all the way to Noah was important to us and yet none of us knew it. None of us knew that the picture of the gospel was right there in Genesis chapter 5 written in the names of those guys. But understand that everything in scripture is there for a reason. Including this verse that in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 tells us the following. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. God likes to create mystery. He likes to conceal things. Why? Proverbial writer goes on and says, It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. God, it's his glory to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings, noble people, to search out a matter. Which is why Paul called the Bereans in the book of Acts more noble than those of Thessalonica because they searched out the scriptures. They were noble, kingly people, and it was to their glory that they were searching out things. Listen to this. The seventh month, the seventeenth day, what's the big deal? Israel has two calendars. One, but two ways of looking at their calendar. Okay? Rosh Hashanah is the head, meaning the head of the year, is the Jewish New Year. And Rosh Hashanah happens in what we consider the fall, and it happens on the first day of the month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar. Okay? However, when God established the Passover, he instructed Moses to make Nisan in the spring, the beginning of months. Okay? Flipping your Bibles over to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. So Tishri is the beginning of the Jewish calendar, at least civically, but God changes that for Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Now he's talking about Nisan which is the seventh month civically, but now God is saying, I want this to be your first month religiously. Does that make sense? You've got the old civil calendar beginning with Tishri and the new religious calendar beginning in the spring in the month of Nisan. They're both the same calendar, but they have, there are two beginnings there. So when the Jews celebrate Rosh Hashanah, they're celebrating Jewish New Year, the civic calendar. But God told Moses, I want you to make Nisan the beginning now this is your quote-unquote first month. So what is the seventh month in Genesis chapter 8 verse 4? It's the month of Nisan. The seventh month is the month of Nisan in Genesis, but it becomes the beginning of months in Exodus. So what, what the writer is telling us here is that the ark landed on the seventh month. The new beginning for mankind was on the seventh month. 
And so later then in Exodus, God would say, I want you to make this month the month of new beginnings. Why? We'll trace it all the way back to Genesis 8-4 and we see that the world began afresh anew when the ark finally rested on Ararat. Same month, the month of Nisan. But wait, there's more. What's the deal with the 17th day? Go back to Exodus chapter 12. Look again in verse 2. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, On the 10th of this month, They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight Passover. Passover happens in the month of Nisan on the 14th day. That is the day of Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover, the 14th day. What happened on the 17th day of Nisan? He rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ happened on the seventh month and the seventeenth day, the same exact day. I get chills that the ark rested and we had a new world. Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what God does in our lives, isn't it? He rests the ark. He offers a new world. 